Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled, Vengeance and the Kingdom. The text is Matthew 5, 38-48, where Jesus utters two of his most famous commands, Turn the other cheek and love your enemies. These commands have convinced many Christians through the ages that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was setting aside the eye-for-an-eye and tooth-for-a-tooth justice of the law in favor of a radical new ethic of pacifism and non-resistance. At the same time, these commands have convinced many other Christians that Jesus was teaching an ethic that, while ideal, simply cannot be applied in our fallen world. Actually, Jesus was doing neither. Consistent with his pattern thus far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was reintroducing and reaffirming what God had already said in the law over against the twisted interpretations of the scribes and Pharisees. After all, it was Solomon, a full millennium before Jesus, who said, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Proverbs 25:21 And it was Moses a half millennium before Solomon who said the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you and you shall love him as yourself Leviticus 19:34 Jesus was recovering these principles that God embedded in the law from the beginning Jesus reintroduced these principles not to establish a radical form of pacifism, but quite to the contrary, to teach a radical form of warfare. When Solomon said we should feed our enemy and give him drink, he followed up by giving us the reason, For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Proverbs 25:22. Heaping coals of fire on someone's head is hardly consistent with pacifism. No, this is not pacifism. This is kingdom warfare. The only warfare with weaponry powerful enough to change the human heart and change this fallen world. But kingdom warfare, as Jesus tells us, is only for sons of the Father. And being sons of the Father entails becoming like the Father, who loves those who do not love Him, and who causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and unjust alike. This is strange warfare indeed, for it turns out that God's love and his kingdom warfare do the same thing. They transform the world. I hope this sermon will encourage you in the school of God's love and his warfare. Strange partners, I know, but in God's mysterious and wondrous design, they go together. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We will be continuing our study of Matthew, and we're in the midst of the longest sermon by Jesus that we have recorded in Scripture, at least. And uh, today we will be looking at what Jesus has to say on the subject of vengeance and the kingdom. We will look at verses 38 through 48 of Matthew chapter 5. This is the Word of God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, What do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. 
Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let us pray. God and Father, we know that this was your word not only to these disciples, our our brothers and sisters who went before us 2,000 years ago. It's your word to us. And we pray that now by the Spirit you would give us understanding and that you would also give us hearts of obedience to do your word that we would be perfect as you are perfect. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've seen already in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is addressing very serious sins, sins like murder, adultery, falsehood. And yet he's addressed them in such a way that it's not theoretical. He's addressed them in such a way that he's bringing them home to his disciples and showing them how they're really guilty of these things in ways that they never imagined. And there's a new call to holiness for them, a new call to godliness to them. For all these things begin in heart. All of these are the fruits of of trees that begin with roots. And Jesus, in every instance, is concerned to root out the entire evil tree and not only try to manage the fruit. And so having addressed murder, adultery, and falsehood, Jesus now takes up the topic of vengeance. Now, in this passage, he says, as he has been his pattern, you have heard that it was said. So here he says it twice, once in verse 38 and once in verse 43. Verse 38, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Then in verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, these should be considered together because they both deal with the subject of of taking personal vengeance. In verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus here is referring to the scribes and the Pharisees' spin on what has been called down uh, through church history the lex talionis. It's Latin, which means the law of retribution. Now, this, was, this, this is a catchy phrase, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Very catchy. It was catchy uh, for God's people back then. It's still catchy now. If you say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, everybody's going to have heard that. And everybody will know that saying. And you will hear people, even in our uh, post-Christian culture today, often say that. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's very catchy in terms of its phraseology. It's also catchy in terms of the idea. But um, just as we have a real misconception about what that means today, so in the first century, God's covenant people had a real misconception uh, over it based on the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. When you hear that cited today, it is typically cited as being the intrinsic rationale of the law of Moses when it comes to particularly to criminal justice, right? That's the intrinsic rationale that applies across the board, which means no mercy, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. In reality, this was not the intrinsic rationale of the criminal code of the law of Moses. This was a specific law that applied in a couple of very specific criminal contexts having to do with homicide and maiming. The first context we find in Exodus chapter 21. I'll read it to you. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely and yet no harm follows then he shall be punished according to the woman's husband opposes on him. He shall pay a fine as the judge is determined. But if two men fight and a woman with child is hurt so that she gives birth prematurely and harm follows, in other words, to the child, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay? So there's a very specific context that has to do with two men fighting and injuring a pregnant woman and specifically then injury resulting uh, to a prematurely born child. The second context is we find in Leviticus chapter 24. If any man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, this is maiming. And this is not talking about accident like 
two guys are out chopping wood and just an accident happens through no negligence. He's not talking about that. This is a criminal context. So it means that there is an intentional disfigurement. This is, this is like one step short of murder, of actual homicide, is maiming or disfiguring someone, cutting off a hand, cutting off an arm. It's an act of cruelty. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And what we see here is that in a couple of very specific contexts, God imposes on uh, society a duty, a high, high duty of care, specifically with regard to pregnant women and with regard to the children who are yet to be born. A very high duty of care. Two men are fighting. They're not fighting the pregnant woman. They're fighting one another. They could say, we didn't mean to hurt her. I think God's response would be, you didn't mean not to. We didn't mean to hurt the baby. You didn't mean not to. It shows God's value of life, of all life, including the life of an unborn child. The other one, again, is an act of cruelty. And so God, through these criminal statutes, you can see that he is building in a sanction that will have the effect on society to be very careful about these things. To be very careful about these things. So these were the specific contexts in which the lex talionis, the eye for eye and tooth for tooth applied. It was not uh, the underlying thought or rationale of the law of Moses or even of the criminal code in the law of Moses. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were taking an eye for an eye out of its criminal context and being applied across the board to justify a kind of tit-for-tat attitude toward personal wrongs and slights. You wrong me, I'm going to wrong you. You do something to me, I'm doing something to you. Whatever you do to me, that's what I'm doing to you. Okay, That is how it was being used. Now, in verse 43, where Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There Jesus is talking about the scribes and Pharisees spin on the second great commandment, which we find in Leviticus 19, verse 18, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The scribes and Pharisees were taking that commandment and contextualizing it with unrelated texts where God commanded Israel to execute his vengeance on certain peoples. Okay, so. We have certain times in the Old Testament when God, the judge of all things, God, the judge of all the world, determined as a matter of true social justice uh, that a people deserved to be brought under punishment. And it was always after generations of opportunities of repentance and a people going from bad to worse usually through things like sacrificing of babies to idols, burning of babies to idols, being carried on for generations. Uh, and so cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and other places like that. In fact, one of the phrases you find in the Old Testament um, for uh, God holding up Israel from going onto the land is that he says that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The iniquity is not full. God, after patience over long generations of calling people to turn away from really, really vile wickedness, as a matter of social justice, says this civilization basically needs to be removed uh, from the earth. And so God, in certain contexts, called, uh, called his people Israel to execute his vengeance on those people. But when God did that, he always made it very, very clear that this was not a matter of satisfying any kind of blood, human bloodlust. This was not a matter of, of any kind of a rah-rah, we're great, we're God's people, we get to take advantage of everybody else. It had nothing to do with that. And God instituted certain very tangible and visible ways of bringing it home to his people always that they were executing his vengeance here and not their own. And one of the principal ways he did that is... Uh, in the ancient world, and really all the way up into just, you know, probably within about the last 150, 200 years, 
uh, one of the principles of warfare was the taking of spoils, the taking of spoils. Um, so if you were the victors, you got to take all their stuff. Okay? And uh, whenever God called Israel to execute his vengeance on a people, one of the bright line rules was you will take nothing. You will take all their stuff, you'll put it in a pile, and you will burn it. It's an offering to me. You will take not one thing. In fact, you remember all of Israel came under judgment after they entered the land. Uh, they had defeated great Jericho, and now they're going up against the little teeny, teeny town, the little hamlet of Ai, and Ai keeps beating them. And it's because one person out of all uh, the many of Israel had taken a few things of the spoil. You see, that's God's way of saying this is not your war. This is not your war. This is not about you. This is not your vengeance. This is my justice being executed here. It's not conventional warfare. That's not what we're dealing with here. And that was one of the ways God made it very clear. So anyway, the scribes and Pharisees, though, were lifting these uh, individual unique contexts in which God asked Israel to be his agents of uh, vengeance and to uh, take, carry forth his war. And they were blending that in with you will love your neighbor as yourself in order to spin that so that it no longer meant you will love your neighbor as yourself, but it ended up meaning you will love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay? That's what they came up with, which is a huge, gives you a huge uh, outlet, doesn't it? For carrying out personal vengeance. There's a big difference between you will love your neighbor as yourself and you will love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? Can't you, can't you work with that? You can love your neighbor, love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. Could you, could you work with that? Most people could work with that one. Most people could live with that one quite easily. But that's not what God said. So as a result, Israel by the first century instead of being God's covenant people that show kingdom life, they are a people full of grudges, bitterness, vengeance, resentfulness, uh, and personal tit-for-tat, payback, and justice. Now, Jesus says, I tell you to do something else. But I tell you. In verse 39, He says, But I tell you not to resist an evil Person. And then and again in verse 44, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Now, this is Jesus's corrective to what the scribes and Pharisees were doing to pervert God's law. Now, verse 39, again, I'll read this, but I tell you not to resist, resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and for him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, this passage, verse 39 and 40, is one of the chief reasons why many Christians down through the centuries have concluded that the Sermon on the Mount supersedes the law with a new radical ethic involving strict pacifism, no uh, uh, abolishing personal property, and calling for absolute non-resistance. So that's one camp uh, within Christian thought down through the ages. The other main camp of dealing with this is concluding that the Sermon on the Mount presents a kind of an ideal ethic which is really not applicable to life in this fallen world. So one day in heaven, that's the way things will be, but not now. But neither view is correct. First of all, with verse 39, where it says, do not resist an evil person. A number of scholars have argued, among them Peter Lightheart, and I think that they are correct, that this verse is actually correctly rendered, do not resist with evil means. Do not resist with evil means. If, if Jesus here is requiring a kind of strict pacifism and non-resistance, it creates a lot of problems. First of all, it, Jesus then would be annulling the law. 
which he adamantly says on the front end of the Sermon on the Mount about five times he says, I'm not. I'm not annulling the law. Uh, Secondly, Jesus would be breaking from his pattern within the Sermon on the Mount that we've seen thus far of reaffirming the law to correct popular misinterpretations. That's what we've seen him do with murder, adultery, and falsehood. Reaffirm the law and set aside popular misinterpretation. Third, Jesus would be implicitly um, condemning himself as well as the Apostle Paul, both of whom protested when they were unjustly struck. Jesus was struck at his own trial, and he protested against that as being unrighteous and contrary to the law. In Paul's case, he was struck when he was being tried. He also protested that it was contrary to the law of God, and he accused the high priest of hypocrisy of purporting to apply the law of God while he was violating the law of God. Now, not only did Paul do that, but he asserted his rights as a Roman citizen. And in doing so, he used the Roman court system to thwart his Jewish adversaries. As a Roman citizen, he had the ability to appeal to Caesar. He used his rights as a Roman citizen to actually extract his case from sitting before God's covenant people, who at the time were being ruled by unrighteousness, and to throw it over into the Roman pagan court system. So when we look at all of these things, it it really does not fit that Jesus is setting aside the law in favor of a strict pacifism and non-resistance. So we need to ask ourselves, though, what is Jesus saying? What is he saying? Well, Jesus is telling us not to avenge ourselves, but to leave that to God. A slap on the right cheek, you see, is a backhanded slap. Because most people are right-handed. So if you're going to slap somebody on the right cheek with your right hand, how are you going to do that? That is a backhanded slap, which means it's a slap to insult rather than a slap really to injure. And all of Jesus' examples here concern situations where our dignity, our personal pride, or our personal property are threatened by someone who seems to have it into us. When he mentions somebody compels you to go one mile, go two. Well, under the Roman law, a Roman centurion could compel uh, someone to carry their pack for a mile. And that's something the Jews resented because a centurion comes along and compels a Jewish person who doesn't want Rome ruling over them anyway to carry their pack for a mile. Jesus says, don't carry it a mile, carry it two. Carry it two. So you see, that's the kind of situation he's talking about. He's not abolishing private property. The law protects private property. It says, don't move the boundaries of the widow. Even though you have more power than they do and you could do it and get away with it, You don't do it. You don't move it. Uh, And so he, he protects private property. But Jesus is talking about these kind of situations where our sense of our personal dignity, our personal rights, and our personal pride is called into play. Jesus is reminding the people of what God had already told them. He's not saying anything new. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, God says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is not yours. Vengeance is not your concern. It is your concern in a just criminal code because God has called us to do that as being his image and being his children. But when it comes to our person, our personal rights, personal relationships and so forth, God says, you don't worry about vengeance. That's not your concern. Vengeance is mine. In fact, the whole idea of doing good to your enemy and loving your enemy and blessing those who curse you and praying for those who spitefully use you, we tend to read this and think this is a new flower child ethic that Jesus has established in contrast to the old harsh Old Testament law. But this concept comes directly from the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 25, Solomon, what does he say? If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. 
That's what the Old Testament says. That goes right along with true criminal justice in society. It goes right along with vindicating all of God's interests. This is what God says. So the texts where God commanded Israel to wipe out a nation were aimed at God's enemies, not personal enemies. God's people were not to take personal vengeance. In fact, the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, that's the end part of a sentence. It's not a sentence to itself. It's the last phrase of a sentence. I'll read the whole sentence. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a couple of times in the New Testament, Paul and other apostles say that the entire law, when it uh, touches on us dealing with one another, it says that you shall, if it says you shall not murder or commit adultery or steal or anything else, it is summed up by this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So loving your neighbor as yourself sums up our entire duty to one another and to our neighbor. And in the Bible, it's very clear that your neighbor is whoever is in front of you right now. They may be a believer. They may not be a believer. But your neighbor is whoever is in front of you right now. So the lead in to the second great commandment has to do with vengeance. In other words, taking vengeance is the very opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. And God hints to us that taking vengeance, uh, again, it goes into the heart. It's not simply a matter of what we do physically. It doesn't simply mean killing somebody, maiming them, beating them up, taking their stuff, hurting them in some way physically like that. It also includes things like bearing a grudge. Bearing a grudge is a form of taking vengeance. And it is the opposite attitude of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, in verse 45 and in verse 48, Jesus tells us who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do. He says in verse 45, be sons of your father in heaven, be sons of your father in heaven. And in verse 48, he says, be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. And when you think about it, God takes vengeance, but he is not vengeful. God takes vengeance, but he is not vengeful. He is loving. He is patient. He is merciful and kind. In fact, one of the big problems in the world, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 2, is that people mistake God's patience and forbearance and kindness and love. Paul speaks to the person who keeps hardening themselves. And he says, don't you understand what God's patience and forbearance and kindness are about? They are to lead you to repentance because they are to show you who God really is. They're to show you his love, show you his mercy and to draw you to him. But you're storing up wrath for yourself when you keep turning away from the patience and kindness of God. And you keep dumbling down, you keep hardening yourself, you keep doubling down on your attitudes and your evil. So one of the big problems in the world is that people do not see the patience and the forbearance and the kindness of God for what it is. When God is patient and he's kind to those who are doing evil and he gives them a long, long time to repent, what do people conclude? They conclude that there is no God or if he is, he's not watching or if he is watching, he doesn't care. That's what the Psalms say that people conclude. But Paul gives the correct interpretation. God is not a vengeful God, even though he takes vengeance. Again, what we see again and again is that God takes vengeance even uh, after long periods of patience and kindness and opportunities for repentance. And the reason why he takes vengeance ultimately is because God hates evil. And God has determined that good will overcome evil. So God cannot forever allow evil to abide. For him to do so would mean that he is not good. 
What would you think of a judge? Let's say we had a judge here in our community and, and you keep hearing about this judge on the news or you keep reading about them in the newspaper or today you're reading about them on the Internet. I don't think anybody reads the newspaper anymore. But you keep reading about them and the judge keeps having criminals come before him and saying, bless you, bless you, son. I know you raped that woman and killed her. I know you lit her on fire and burned her alive. You, you think I'm making this stuff up. I'm not. Um, but I want you to know about kindness and mercy and, and, and bless you. Go in peace. What if this judge kept letting people go who were committing crimes? Would you regard this judge as being a good judge? I don't think so. You may regard that judge as a lot of things, but one thing you would not do is regard them as being good. In fact, you would complain about this judge. You would say this judge is not doing their job. They're not standing against evil. And because God is good, he ultimately must be the good judge who judges evil. But we see before that all kinds of mercy and patience and kindness and opportunity for repentance. So, we see that God takes vengeance ultimately, but He is not vengeful. As it says in verse 45, He gives good gifts to the unjust as well as the just. See, we tend to not pay attention until something bad happens to somebody. And then we tend to get indignant and say, this wasn't fair what this happened to this person. This person got cancer. This other thing happened. This isn't fair. We don't notice. We don't notice all the years of the goodness of God of giving, not just to good people, but to those who hate Him. It says that God causes the sun to rise and He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Again, we tend to have a naturalistic view of of the universe and we think the sun just rises. The sun doesn't just rise. The sun rises because God says, do it again. The rain falls because God says, do it again. It is God's blessing every day that He gives us these things. And He does it not only for those who are good, but those who are evil. He does it not only for those who acknowledge His name and pray to Him, but those who deny Him. The atheist who dies an atheist. The atheist who dies in their 80s, who has spent a lifetime of arguing against the existence of God, of bashing God's people, of mocking them, and so forth, of writing books and doing everything they can to um, put down the name of God and to destroy His cause among people, how many times did the sun rise upon that person? How many times did they get to enjoy a blue sky and sunshine or rain and the bread that comes from it and all the good things that they enjoyed in their life? All of this time, somebody who hates God, who spises despises them, who has to sit in God's lap to spit in His face, God keeps giving them good things day after day after day after day. Now that's what God is like. And that's why I say that even though God takes vengeance, He is not a vengeful God. And we see that in Christ, God gave a lot more than sun and rain. In Christ... God the Son laid aside all of His divine privileges. He laid aside all of His divine glory. He humbled Himself. He became one of us. He wet Himself. He needed His diapers changed. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to walk. He had sinful parents just like you and I did or do. All of these things He took upon Himself. And Paul's point in Philippians 2 when he says that, that Jesus, although He existed in the form of God, eternally God the Son, did not regard equality with God as something to be clutched. In other words, He did not regard His Godness as some kind of an impediment to Him becoming one of us. He did not regard His Godness as an impediment to Him going to the cross. Rather, it was His Godness that impelled him to do it. He did it not in spite of the fact that he was God. He did it because he was God. And this is who God is. 
This is what God is like. In Christ, God laid aside his privileges and he humbled himself to overcome evil. And Jesus' victory over evil is expressed in a couple of ways. Let me note, why did Jesus lay all this aside? To introduce some kind of a new flower child ethic? Because good doesn't matter? Because evil doesn't need to be overcome? No, he did these things to destroy evil. And we see his victory expressed in a couple of ways. First of all, we see his victory expressed in mercy and forgiveness to his enemies who turn to him in faith and repentance. Who is it who gets to experience the grace of God in salvation? Who is it who gets to experience the love of God in salvation? His enemies. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. Here's how we see the love of God. When we were His enemies, Christ died for us. We weren't His believers when Christ died for us. We were His enemies when He died for us. And secondly, we see the the victory of God over evil in Christ manifested through patience Kindness, mercy, but ultimately justice to those who harden themselves and refuse to turn to Him in faith and repentance. And we can see these two facets in how Jesus conducted Himself as the perfect man, the perfect Son, who is the example to all of us of what it means to be a true child of the Father. And that's what Jesus says this is all about. It's all about us becoming like the Father, being perfect, like the Father. First of all, we see that Jesus absolutely refused to promote Himself. He refused to seek His own honor. He refused to seek His own vindication or retribution for personal wrongs against Him. Instead, He sought His Father's honor. He promoted His Father's interests alone. He was quick to take stands when His Father's honor or interests were being attacked. That's why we see him blasting away at the scribes and Pharisees at different points. He's not vindicating himself. He's vindicating his father's honor and his father's interests. When it came to his personal honor and interests, we see Jesus hanging on the cross while the Roman soldiers are dividing his clothing, while the rulers and the people are saying he saved others. If he's the Christ, then let him come down and save himself When that was going on, we have Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That's Jesus' attitude toward his personal honor and his personal vengeance. He seeks God's honor and he seeks the good of those, even the ones who are crucifying him. As it says in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth when it came to his own personal honor and vindication. Instead, what did he do? Was it the fact that he didn't care about honor? No, that's not the point. He wasn't a Buddhist. He cared about honor, and because he cared about honor, he conducted himself the way he did. He entrusted himself to the Father. That's the key. He entrusted himself to the Father. It says in Hebrews 5, Christ did not glorify himself, but it was the Father who did so. Christ did not glorify himself. He did not seek to vindicate himself. He did not seek to protect his own dignity and his own rights. He entrusted himself to the Father. It goes on in Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, He offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to the Father who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. And then it says, He was a son, and he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected. Now that's the same word Jesus uses. That we're supposed to be perfect as our Father is perfect. Jesus was perfected. It doesn't mean he had sin in him and he had to get the sin out. No, it means that he needed to be brought to full maturity and full glory as a perfect human being. 
And in this way, he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Jesus trusted the Father's promise in the Psalms that God would not leave his soul to Hades or allow his Holy One to see corruption. Psalm 16. This is the psalm that says, At God's right hand is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's the same psalm that says that God will not abandon his Holy One to Hades nor allow him to see corruption. This is a psalm of David. Peter preaches this psalm on the day of Pentecost. And he says that this was David as a prophet looking forward to the fact that the Christ, the son of David, these things would be fulfilled. So this was a promise from the father to his son that if the son trusted him, did not seek his own vindication, did not seek his own glory, but sought the father's glory, that the father would not abandon him but would exalt him, would honor him. It says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus despised the shame of the cross, but for the joy set before him, he endured it. For the joy set before him, what joy? That the Father is going to honor him, that the Father is going to give him the joy that is at his right hand. And so we see ultimately that Jesus receives honor. He receives glory. He is exalted to God's right hand. He's given all power and authority and all judgment is committed into his hand. But how did this come to him? Not by him seeking it, but by him seeking the honor and glory of his father, by him seeking the good of his neighbor, even his enemies, and by him entrusting himself to the father. And this is what Jesus is really calling us to do. Once Jesus was exalted to the Father and judgment was committed into his hands, he exercised patience and, and mercy, just like the Father does, for repentance. But after 40 years, he brought vengeance on those who hardened themselves and refused to turn in faith and repentance, and he brought destruction on Jerusalem. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, lived in the 1930s when Hitler came into power in Germany. And Bonhoeffer and his family were very prescient. They saw very clearly from the beginning who Hitler was and what he was going to do. Now, a lot of people think that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pacifist. He really wasn't. You have to read him carefully. He really wasn't. But he did believe that the word of God applied to all situations. And while the establishment church in Germany was running as hard as it could after Hitler, Bonhoeffer was trying to start really a a different church within Germany to stand against this evil. Ultimately, Bonhoeffer took part in a plot to assassinate Hitler. He argued that tolerating such evil as Hitler was tantamount to supporting it. And so he came to see that in order for he himself to not be evil, he needed to take this kind of stand against evil. The plot failed, and Bonhoeffer was executed, ultimately, along with his co-conspirators. That's what he died for, trying to kill Hitler. And he did so expressly, as a Christian, and as a result of his faith. Now listen to what Bonhoeffer says, because I think he nails exactly what uh, Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount here. Bonhoeffer said, Who stands firm? Who stands firm? Only the one for whom the final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all these when in faith and sole allegiance to God, he is called to obedient and responsible action. The responsible person whose life will be nothing but an answer to God's question and God's call. I'll say it again. Who stands firm? Only the one for whom the final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all these 
when in faith and sole allegiance to God, he is called to obedient and responsible action. That's a way of describing the life of Christ. And it should be a description of all of our lives. This doesn't mean that God expects people to be uh, massacred instead of fleeing uh, for their own safety. Note throughout the Gospels the care that Jesus takes to make sure his disciples flee Jerusalem when destruction is brought on it. He takes great care to make sure they get out. So he's not talking about some kind of a perverted uh, nobility of martyrdom here. What he is talking about is entrusting ourselves to God even as Christ did and even as we can see that Bonhoeffer himself did. Now, the other thing that, that Bonhoeffer really understood, and you can see from his letters shortly before his death as he was in uh, Nazi uh, prison, that he was moving from the pietism of uh, the German tradition of that time. You tended to have two groups within the uh, main German church, which was the Lutheran church. One group now is following hard, has become really a nationalistic church, uh, promoting Hitler because he's making Germany great once, once again. Uh, the other church that was standing against that uh, was the good section of the church, but it tended to be very, very pietistic, which is that... Um, a high sense of obedience and a high sense of serving God, but it's all within. It's all within the individual. It's all here in my heart. And it did, they, they had lost the sense of, of Christ's kingdom covering everything. Bonhoeffer was moving back toward the view of Christ's kingdom covering everything, of there not being any place you can go or any square inch of this universe or any human activity at any level, personal or collective at which God, Christ is not king over all of it. And the reason why he was moving in that direction very powerfully is he said this. He said, because I've seen evil. I've seen evil. And he, doesn't, he didn't mean what we mean when we say we've seen evil. We mean somebody treated us badly on one occasion. You know, we think we've seen evil. He meant that he had been to the edge of the abyss and looked over the edge. He had seen in Hitler, in his regime, the face of true evil. And Bonhoeffer said, I know that the gospel must go everywhere and cover everything because there is no power great enough to stop that evil except for the gospel. He said, we have no power as normal human beings None of our political solutions, none of our economic solutions, none of our military or national security solutions, the, the UN, anything you want to name, the World Bank, none of it, he said, has the power to stand for an instant before the power of this evil. Only the gospel, only Christ can stand before this evil. And that's what Jesus is really saying to us here. He's not encouraging pacifism, quite to the contrary. In fact, Proverbs 25, which Jesus is alluding to in our passage here, where Solomon says, you know, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he is thirsty, give him to drink. Why does Solomon say to do this? He says, because in doing so, you will heat coals of fire on his head. And you will be blessed by your father who is in heaven. Coals of fire on the head doesn't sound like pacifism to me. That's the language of warfare. And so what Jesus is really saying, what Solomon was saying so many years before, is that the problem with all of our different means of dealing with evil and the problem with all of our normal weapons of warfare, all of our ways that we seek to protect ourselves, vindicate our wives, vindicate our lives, protect uh, freedom, protect liberty, protect all of these things that we associate with the good life, it's not powerful enough. None of those weapons can overcome the true face of evil. Jesus is saying, your weapons don't work. You need more powerful weapons. If somebody is compelling you to carry their pack for a mile, what do you need? He's not saying become a Buddhist and don't care. He's saying you need power. You need power. You need something that works. 
You need something that overcomes, that changes the world. And all the normal things that we turn to, all they do is reaffirm the whole principle of vengeance, of personal rights and personal dignity, everybody looking out for themselves and taking vengeance on one another, bearing grudges and so forth. He says, all you do is perpetrate the evil. You're actually becoming an accessory after the fact to whatever evil you think has been perpetrated on you. The kind of mindset that Jesus is condemning here is the one that once made dueling honorable among Christian gentlemen. Dueling was honorable among Christian gentlemen. I I read an account of an almost duel. It was an almost duel that erupted in a southern military academy back prior to the Civil War. Here's how it came about. Two cadets reached for the salt shaker at the same time. Their honor would not allow either of them to yield. Almost resulted in a duel. Now, Jesus would say to these cadets that they don't care about real honor at all because their standoff over the salt shaker is extremely dishonorable. If they were true men of honor, the fight would have been over who got to show honor to the other by saying, no, please, you first. What does Paul say in Romans 12? Give preference to one another. Give preference to one another. Why? Give preference to one another in honor. That's what honor does. So the Bible is not unconcerned with honor and dignity. For repeatedly those qualities are mentioned not only in connection with church officers and their wives. If you read the qualifications for church officers and their wives in Titus and in 1 Timothy, you will see Paul again and again and again talking about people conducting themselves with honor. Or with nobility. And Paul also mentions it as a trait that should characterize older and younger men and women. In other words, honor, true dignity should characterize all Christians. But true dignity and honor do not duel over the salt shaker. True dignity and honor are like God who sets aside his privileges in Christ in order to bring us to him. The portal, the entrance, the doorway to honor and dignity is humility. Proverbs 15 and 18 as well say, before honor is humility. Before before destruction, the heart is proud, but before honor is humility. Humility is the doorway. The humble in spirit will retain honor. Proverbs chapter 29. So again, we have our example in Christ. And Christ is giving us a new form of a new way of thinking and a new kind of warfare. So how does this work when it comes to matters like crime and when it comes to matters like war? Let's say take World War II. Well, you're dealing with somebody like Hitler. Well, I think C.S. Lewis helps us here. And I'm going to quote what he says. Does loving your enemy mean not punishing him? No. For loving myself does not mean that I ought not to subject myself to punishment, even to death. If you had committed murder, the right Christian thing to do would be to give yourself up to the police and be hanged. It is therefore, in my opinion, perfectly right for a Christian judge to sentence a man to death or a Christian soldier to kill an enemy. In fact, both John the Baptist and Jesus saw no inherent inconsistency with somebody being a Christian and a Roman centurion. Lewis goes on, I imagine someone will say, well, if one is allowed to condemn the enemy's acts and punish him and kill him, what difference is left between Christian morality and the ordinary view? All the difference in the world. Remember, we Christians think man lives forever. Therefore, what really matters is those little marks or twists on the central inside part of the soul, which are going to turn it in the long run into a heavenly or a hellish creature. We may kill if necessary, but we must not hate and enjoy killing. We may punish if necessary, but we must not enjoy it. 
Even while we kill and punish, we must try to feel about the enemy as we feel about ourselves. To wish he were not so bad. To hope that he may, in this world or another, be cured. In fact, to wish his good. This is what is meant in the Bible by loving him, wishing his good, not feeling fond of him or saying he is nice when he is not. So this leads us then to a different way of living and what we must do as Christians. What do we do now? Now that we understand this, I think at least sufficiently to move forward on it. What must we do? First thing is you need to take stock. Each of you, myself included, we need to take stock of how we're doing in terms of what Jesus is teaching here. And you begin to take stock in prayer. Go before God in prayer and ask Him to show you how you're doing in terms of seeking your own honor, seeking to protect your own rights, seeking to protect your own dignity. Ask God to reveal to you by the Spirit how you're doing. Do you seek vengeance on other people? Or are you like Christ, not being concerned with your honor and your dignity, but being concerned with the glory of God and the good of others? Ask God to show you this. The second part of taking stock is to look where Lewis tells us to look. He says to look for those little marks on the inside of the soul. The little marks on the inside of the soul. We want to look in the small We're not facing, at least right now, all kinds of overt evil. There's always evil at work in our nation. We see it at work in our nation now. But we're not really suffering for the faith right now. And so we need to look for the little marks of the soul. Look at the small of life. Look at your attitudes. Look at how you react to other people. And focus on close relationships. Focus on close relationships. That's where you're most likely to see the little marks on the inside of the soul. Focus on your marriage. Focus on your family. Focus on your church family, where your Christian friends are. And then focus on where the other people that you may know on a regular basis, where you may work. That is where you're most likely to see what are the little marks on the inside of your soul on how you're really doing in terms of seeking God's honor or seeking your own. Use the checklist of Leviticus 19 as it leads up to love your neighbor as yourself. Ask yourself, are you bearing grudges? Are you resentful? Are you tailbearing? Are you recruiting other people to be against another person, tail-bearing. It's a form of standing against the life of your neighbor, according to Leviticus 19. And finally, keep in mind that if you go through this checklist, if you ask God to reveal these things to you, and you don't come up with anything, I'd recommend you do it again. Okay? Now, I'm not saying to be phony. I'm not saying to come up with a long list so you can seem to be so... Uh, you know, humble and so forth. This is between you and God. And I do think that there are people who really don't have that much of a problem with this. I think that we have a few saints in every generation who are like Cora Ten Boom, who suffered time in a Nazi prison camp, forgave the, God, the guards, preached the gospel to them. I think we do have some Christians in every generation who really don't have a, a problem with this by God's grace. But I don't think that should be our working assumption when it comes to ourselves. Okay? So first, take stock. And the second thing to do is to take action. Take action. And again, just as taking stock begins in prayer... Taking action begins in prayer. When you identify maybe some attitudes you're struggling with, some relationships that are difficult, uh, grudges that you bear, can't help but keeping up, thinking about this one person, struggling with resentfulness, seeking to protect yourself, maybe seeking to recruit people to stand against somebody else, that kind of thing, tail-bearing. Pray for God to show you 
how to use the kingdom warfare weapons in that particular context. Pray for him to show you how to carry the pack two miles instead of one. Because that's where the power is. Jesus is not saying being powerless. He's saying you need some real power. And so you need some real power in these different relationships. Pray for God to show you that. How do you carry the pack one more mile in this particular relationship? Okay. And through that, apply it and seek to overcome evil with good. Ask for God to do his work. Ask for him to work miracles. If we do not bring it down to this kind of personal level, then this is all just going to get stuck in our head. And so we understand some concepts, but we're not going where Jesus wants us to go, which is to be perfect as our Father is perfect, to be true children of the Father as Jesus was a true Son of the Father. So I encourage you for these things, and I encourage you to pray for everybody else who's here as we go through this, that Jesus would make us both individually and as a local body of His truly a transformed people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.